Hello and welcome to Corporate Grime, the podcast where corporate governance expert Professor Andy Schmulo and myself, an investigative financial journalist, lift the veil on the sleaze and corruption riddling Australia's corporate sector. Hello, Andy. Hi, Anthony. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Uh, just a great pleasure to be back with you and a great pleasure to be doing another podcast. Indeed. Look, I thought we'd kick off today just having a, having a brief look at uh, something that many listeners may not be aware of, and it's something that I think is quite remarkable and uh, has been vastly underplayed by Australian media. Um, so between 19, or rather, sorry, 2012 and 2022, Australia fell faster towards corruption than any other OECD nation. Um, we fell as fast, or we tied in first place down the corruption index with Hungary. Um, in 2022, Hungary is no longer considered a full democracy. Um, so that just gives you an example of we're not just talk, it's not just academic here what we're talking about. This is very real. Um, Transparency International top global monitor. Um, it's also worth noting that between that's between 2012 2022. Between 2013 2022 was when the former coalition government was in power. So it bears most, if not the entire, uh, is entirely to blame for that. Um, fall down the scale, or enormously to blame at least. Um, now, that's not to say the ALP government currently is is, is wonderful. Um, they could be doing vastly better. Um, we're, we're tracking up um, slightly compared to where we were going, but it's still uh, we're still in a bit of strife. So I thought we'd just start off with that as a starting point. Um, Andy, you mentioned you were having a look at an article that's crossed your desk. Yeah, uh, a very interesting article with some, some very interesting background to it. And before I get on to that. I wanted to say, you know, Anthony, I, one of the things that I see in Australia, and this feeds into the uh, decline that Australia has experienced in its ranking in the Transparency International Index, is that there are things that are going on in, in Australia that are a threat to democracy and a threat to the rule of law. Now, those are not uh, some of the things that a lot of people are jumping up and down about, like mask mandates. Wearing a mask is not a threat to democracy and it's not a threat to the rule of law. Banging on about that stuff is just a distraction. You can take your mask off and it, it, it's really not, not that much of a big deal. There are other things a bit, that... A bit, a bit been... like Woolworths, Woolworths stocking Australia Day memorabilia. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure the only reason why they're stopping selling that stuff is not because they're making a political statement. I'm sure it's because it just doesn't sell well enough. I don't think Woolworths is so uh, woke that they, they care whether people celebrate Australia Day or not. I'm, I'm sure the only consideration that Brad Balducci, the CEO, has taken in this regard is whether or not stuff on that shelf space will sell. Of course, and the, and the, and the opposition knows that full well. It's just nonsense. But anyway, uh, back to you. So we've got people banging on about mask mandates and how, how wearing a mask is a threat to democracy. And I have a kind of, I'd like to think that those same people, if, if their children, if one of their children was on an operating theatre table and about to be cut open by a surgeon and the surgeon wasn't wearing a mask and they said to the surgeon why aren't you wearing a mask and the surgeon turned around and went oh it's my freedom it's all about my freedom the parent would say well you're not touching my child the mask mandates are not the threat to democracy the threat to democracy and the threat to the rule of law is the fact that we have major corporations routinely breaking the law and they're never prosecuted and they're never held to account and the law is, never, is, is not enforced. And this has been a criticism of ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, that has been levelled at ASIC now since uh, about 2010. And um, I've come across 
an article written by a colleague of mine who is a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's written an article in the UNSW Law Journal. Now, I just want to point out, this is significant. I'm not taking this information from some dark, fetid corner of the internet that is full of conspiracy cookers. The UNSW Law Journal, the Sydney Law Review and the Melbourne Law Review are the three most prestigious law journals in Australia, and they're extremely difficult to get published in. And I've been a reviewer for articles to the UNSW Law Journal, and I can tell you when I'm asked to review articles for that journal, I'm absolutely brutal. I go through every one of the footnotes. I go through the article with the aim of trying to trip up the author, of trying to trap the author in a misstatement, of trying to find some reason why the article shouldn't get published. And if I can't find anything in the footnotes, if there's a problem with the grammar or the spelling or the, or the punctuation isn't good enough, then I reject the article. To get published in the UNS Law, UNSW Law Journal is a really, really difficult task, and it requires the highest level of academic rigor, which is peer-reviewed by three blind peer reviewers, which means that when I get an article to review for the UNSW Law Journal, I have no idea who's written it, right? So it's a completely blind peer, peer review, and I take the article and I do my best to tear it to pieces. So this guy, his name is Eugene Schofield Georgeson, and he is a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's been published in the UNSW Law Journal in 2020. And let me read to you some of the things that he states, some of his findings in his article, which are really, uh, I think, really shocking. <clears throat> he says as follows, he says, some of the most extraordinary examples of ASIC's regulatory capture, so for if you're wondering what regulatory capture is, regulatory capture is a state of affairs in which the regulator is captured by the industry that it's supposed to regulate. And instead of regulating that industry and instead of policing that industry, it starts to serve the interests of that industry. And the fact that ASIC is captured by the financial industry was one of the findings of the Hain Royal Commission. And I might add also the, the, the field of the study of regulatory capture is one that goes back to the 1860s. Uh, significant contribution by, for example, Charles Francis Adams, who wrote about the capture of the US Railroad Commissions by the railroad barons and proposed what he called a Sunshine Commission. And there have been other very significant contributors like Moreva Bernstein, who won the Nobel Prize. So capture is a well-understood and well-documented phenomenon. He says some of the most extraordinary examples of ASIC's regulatory capture was cited by a former ASIC legal officer turned whistleblower. The first example involved what they described as, and he quotes, a full court press from lobbying groups like the Financial Services Council trying to get ASIC to change the law to benefit it, close quotes. These amendments, they said, were, open quotes, just rammed through in circumstances where I thought ASIC just didn't have the power to do it. This is the whistleblower who's talking. When this respondent spoke out against these dealings to the most senior legal officials within ASIC, they were told that, and I quote, saying no just wasn't an option, and that continued resistance risked not only their job at ASIC, but their admission as a solicitor in New South Wales. So a veiled threat, right? right if you wow. start making trouble and you start being difficult and you make things difficult for us with the Financial Services Council, which is a lobby group 
for the biggest banks and insurers in the country. It's the, then, it's the epitome of vested interests. It's the lobby group and, for the banks. Yep. And if you, if you don't go quietly, not only are you going to lose your job here, but you won't get admitted to practice in New South Wales. He then goes on to say, when a superannuation fund lobbied ASIC to repeal fee disclosure obligations for online superannuation calculators, ASIC established a dedicated team to deal with their submissions. The team included the lawyer from the same superannuation fund who had drafted the correspondence lobbying ASIC to change the laws. So ASIC, Unbelievable. ASIC establishes this uh, special management team for this particular fund. And who runs this team? The fund. They call somebody from the fund to come into ASIC and police his own fund. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so this uh, senior manager who drafted the correspondence, correspondence lobbying ASIC to change the laws, ASIC senior managers dismissed the whistleblower's concerns that such an apparent conflict of interest constituted a criminal offence under the ASIC Act. When a major investment bank lobbied ASIC to legalise what the whistleblower referred to as, quote, a large-scale tax dodge, so this refers back to the problems that we've been seeing with PwC, to legalise a large-scale tax dodge, ASIC could provide only the most feeble of responses. The interviewee described how the major law firm representing the bank, and I quote, misrepresented the law and the way their scheme operated. ASIC very nearly capitulated were it not for his insistence against legalising the scheme. Upon suggesting to ASIC senior management that the firm be admonished for its improper legal practice and disrespect towards the regulator, the whistleblower was reprimanded as being quote-unquote crazy given the wealth, power and prestige of both the firm and its client. The interviewee did not see the problem in terms of corruption, but merely as reflecting the extreme political power of a very powerful, wealthy set of people who are lobbying for the stuff in a very aggressive, very assertive way, showing that they had infinite resources and infinite lawyers. These anecdotes clearly illustrate large-scale differentiation in ASIC's enforcement of corporate crime, in particular Sutherland's observation that white-collar criminals are equipped not only to evade the law, but to change the law in their own interests. Now, earlier in the article, um, he talks about, he, he quotes uh, a number of interviews with whistleblowers. Let me give you a couple of key quotes. Maybe so it's, 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 it's worth pointing out as well, just, I'll just butt in there, it's worth pointing out this study, um, this peer-reviewed study, the, 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 the doctor, um, professor who's constructed it, um, he's relying on 14 uh, interviews um, of, of professionals um, and he's saying including former ASIC enforcement staff, investigators and corporate lawyers, uh, around half held senior positions within ASIC and most of work at ASIC over the past decade, between four between two and 25 years. So he's got people that can speak on the condition of uh, anonymity and he's getting the he's getting to the guts of what's going on. And not only that, he's published this paper in 2020, two years after the Royal Commission said to ASIC, number one, stop treating regulated entities like clients. Number two, go and enforce the law. Number three, stop co-opting people from industry to investigate their own funds and their own banks. Two years later, 
Let me give you some a couple of key quotes. He says, maybe you're actually scrapping regulations that are well-crafted to protect investors and, shareholders and stakeholders, they said, and you're only doing it because you've been lobbied by financial services firms. He says, um, in criticising a former ASIC chairman, who I think is probably Delosio or Medcraft, he says, one of the whistleblowers says, I remember that his key thing was what he called facilitating capital market flows. And I used to say, what the hell does that actually mean? Where does it say in the ASICS charter or the act that we're set up to do that? In this article, one of the things that's really very interesting, and I credit, uh, I credit you, Anthony, with picking this up. Yes, yeah, so I came across this and thought it was quite remarkable. One of the things that he quotes in this article, this fellow Georgenson, is he quotes an article written in 1992 by a fellow by the name of Joseph Longo. An article written in 1992 entitled The Powers of Investigation of the Australian Securities Commission, Balancing the Interests of Persons and Companies Under Investigation with the Interests of the State, 1992, Volume 10, Number 4, Company and Securities Law Journal, page 237. The same Joseph Longo who two years later became chairman of ASIC, right? So in 1992, this is what Longo had to say. In reviewing these powers, some have suggested that they have the potential to infringe universal human rights and individual civil, civil liberties. And if you go to his article, he says, in conclusion, this is Longo, there needs to be a far greater sensitivity to the rights of the individual in company investigation. So Joseph Longo has a very long history of arguing for and publishing research justifying a light touch to regulatory enforcement. And lo and behold, when James Shipton was kicked out of ASIC because of, or resigned from ASIC because of irregularities with his uh, tax advice, who did Josh Friedberg appoint to replace him? Mr. Light Touch to Regulation, Joseph Longo. So, so, so the, the, the point is as well, I mean, you've got uh, an academic 2020 extremely on the ball and is referring, this is the year before they decided to appoint Joseph Longo, ref, looking at the literature and saying, look, here's one of the, um, the, 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 the most, um, the loudest voices or the, the most important voices to go to in terms of um, people who want to water down the law, this Joseph Longo. And the next year, you've got Treasurer Josh Frydenberg putting him in charge of ASIC. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that uh, I don't think it is at all. I, th I think Frydenberg had a long and rich tradition of watering down the powers of regulators. He tried to scrap responsible lending laws, which was opposed and defeated in the Senate. Uh, he did everything he could to uh, promote the interests of the financial industry, despite the fact that that financial industry had just emerged from a royal commission in which it was found to be committing fraud, theft dishonesty and misconduct on an industrial scale, charging dead people for financial advice, charging customers they knew were dead, life insurance premiums. Commissioner Haynes said on, at one, on one occasion at the Royal Commission, he said to a representative of, uh, I think it was AMP, you were charging life insurance premiums when you knew there was no longer a life to insure. And who gets, who gets the nod to take over the most important regulator whose job it is to enforce the law to ensure that customers simply are treated fairly 
Joe Longo. And when he was appointed, Michael Pelley's wrote an article that was published in the Australian Fin Review in which Joseph Longo was introduced, uh, him and Sarah Court. And the article made the point that, and we're going back to enforceable undertakings, despite the fact that the Hain Royal Commission said enforceable undertakings is not a way to enforce the law. It's so just to explain that, an, an, an enforceable undertaking, so you might be thinking, what on earth is that? So an enforceable undertaking... Um, if you've done the wrong thing, say I'm a, a, a corporate crook, I've done the wrong thing. ASIC, rather than coming at me and saying, hey, you've done the wrong thing, you're charged with X, Y, Z, they have a bit of a deal behind the scenes and go, how's about we give you this thing called an enforceable undertaking? Um, you promise not to do it again, and if you promise not to do it again, we won't give you any penalty. If you do do it again, we might give you a penalty. We'll have a chat then. That's what an enforceable undertaking is. So rather than actually doing anything, they have these enforceable undertakings. And in compiling those enforceable undertakings, it's a negotiation. So they go and speak to the bank and they go and speak to the insurer and they say, well, we, want, we don't want to take you to court, but would you agree to an enforceable undertaking and would you agree to an enforceable undertaking that includes the, the following provisions? And then, then, they, then they negotiate and the bank says, well, we don't want this provision, we don't want that provision. And so they continually water it down until eventually it's acceptable to the party that's being punished. How about we did that? How about we do that the next time somebody gets a parking ticket? You go to civic compliance and say, look, um, instead of paying the fine, let's have an enforceable undertaking. And the enforceable undertaking will be that I will undertake to do my best not to park illegally uh, as long as that doesn't inconvenience me. How about we do that? Or the next time somebody commits rape or murder, we say to them, well, uh, let's bring down an enforceable undertaking where you agree that, you know, next time somebody uh, annoys you, you'll try your best not to uh, stick a knife in their neck. It's absolutely absurd. And when Alan Fells, who ran the ACCC, was giving testimony to the Senate a couple of months ago, giving testimony to the Senate about ASIC's weak enforcement, he said, I just don't understand it. At the ACCC, we didn't engage in these kinds of questions. We just went, is the law being broken? Yes, okay, prosecute. Now we have an article that appeared at the start of this week, again in the Australian Financial Review, in which Joseph Longo, Mr. Light Touch to Regulation, said that uh, ASIC is going to take more difficult cases to court. They'll even take cases to court that they might lose. Let me put this in context, why Joseph Longo is saying this now. He's been absolutely hammered for the last year by Andrew Bragg's Senate inquiry into why ASIC isn't enforcing the law. And he's trying to give the, give the appearance that he's not incompetent and that he's not captured and that he's willing to do a little bit of enforcement. And so he says, okay, we'll take cases to court where even if we, we're not certain, we, we, we'll win. Five years ago, Commissioner Hain said to ASIC, you must go to court even if you think you'll lose. If the matter is important enough, go to court and lose so that we know where the law is deficient and we know where we need law reform. Precisely. So it, it was remarkable that what I, what I found regarding having covered ASIC for, say, 20 years at the Royal Commission and, and the public looking at ASIC sort of saying, well, hang on, what on earth? And Commissioner Hayne was saying, this is, this is crazy. I mean, you're a regulator. Why on earth wouldn't you litigate? Um, therefore, in future, um, I recommend that uh, the law be changed or that you're pressured in, in so that if you're not going to litigate against someone who's done the wrong thing, 
the first step should be explaining why you're not going to. And as you mentioned, um, Frydenberg, the treasurer, then turned around and, and dropped that or pushed it and then dropped it. Um, I think it's just worth pointing out as well. So the, 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 the issue you raised before, Andy, regarding the importance of ASIC, I mean, it's difficult to overstate just how important ASIC is as the corporate regulator for Australia's entire financial system, essentially. Um, now, uh, James Shipton was the, the ASIC head. He was brought in around 2018 or just before. Now, that was just before the Banking Royal Commission um, was held. Now, the government at the time, the coalition government, had, had done everything it could to prevent that from coming into place. So they rejected or voted against it 27 times or perhaps 37. I can't remember the exact number. but it was 26. 26. There you go. 26 times. Um, they knew this was coming. They appointed James Shipton. Now, a few years earlier, as we mentioned before, um, in an earlier podcast, James Shipton had been senior executive in at Goldman Sachs, which is one of the most notorious uh, corporations on the planet. Um, and he was in charge uh, at the time the 1MDB massive Malaysian billion-dollar scandal happened. So that was just three years before he was appointed ASIC. He's at ASIC uh, three years in, massive um, scandal in that he has charged illegally charged taxpayers $118,000 um, for his own personal tax advice, um, it's above the above the remuneration tribunal cap. It's illegal. Um, there's a shoddy investigation, or there's an investigation of which uh, the then treasurer um, Josh Frydenberg hides the or secretly deletes the the findings. I know that might sound um, a bit out there, but it's all documented. You can read it all about it at theclaxon.com.au. So that's that's where we're at. Um, and now we have uh, Joseph Longo's put in place because Shipton's exited halfway through his term because of the scandal, and they've put in Longo, who in the early 1990s uh, was you know, arguing against regulation, um, subsequently worked for Deutsche Bank, and as well in the 80s and 90s was representing um, Bondi. So the corporate crook. So there you go. There's, there's a bit of history. And when he took over as chair of ASIC, there have been some very significant cases that have come, that have arisen. Uh, for example, um, 53,784 breaches of anti-money laundering counter-terrorism financing laws at Commonwealth Bank. And uh, the question was asked, will ASIC be prosecuting the directors of Commonwealth Bank for breach of their director's duties? And those director's duties include the duty to act with due care and skill. And there was no, no chance that the directors of Commonwealth Bank could say they didn't know about the problem because they'd been warned about it repeatedly by Austrac. They'd even had letters sent to them, uh, sent to the board of directors by the Australian Federal Police to say, we are really concerned about the, the level of AML breaches at Commonwealth Bank and the fact that your uh, smart ATMs are laundering money. Let me give you just a little bit of an insight. They shut the smart ATM system down, but these are ATMs, these are automatic teller machines, where well, you could go up to the teller and you could deposit cash. It would count the cash and you could, as soon as it had counted it, it could be immediately transferred to a bank account offshore. And people were depositing money into those accounts, into those ATMs, who were not even customers at Commonwealth Bank. So there was a report that went up from a branch in Western Sydney, went up the line went up to management at Commonwealth Bank to say, look, we're, we're a bit concerned. There's this guy who comes along every morning with a milk crate full of $50 notes. Now, just as an aside, what kind of industry are you in where you are earning a milk crate's worth of $50 notes every day? Answer, <laughs> the methamphetamine trade. 
right? Especially in twenty eight, what the twenty twenties, or you know, the twenty first century. Yep. And they said this this guy comes along every morning. He's got a milk crate full of fifty dollar notes. Now you know Sydney's a safe city, but it's not that safe that you can walk around with a milk crate full of fifty dollar notes, unless of course the kind of people who might want to take that milk crate off you would look at you and go, mm, we know who that money belongs to, so we think we won't touch it. This guy comes along every morning. He deposits a milk crate worth of $50 notes into the ATM until the ATM is full and closes down, and then he moves to the next one and the next one, and he does that every single morning. We've, he's not a customer of the bank. We've asked him for his identification. He showed us a driver's license of a middle-aged, overweight, balding Caucasian which is odd in light of the fact that he's a tall, young, slender Asian. And Commonwealth Bank's response was, and this came out in the brief of evidence that Austrac put before the federal court, Commonwealth Bank's management's response was, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Austrac has got no litigation budget. They're not going to take us to court. So on top of that, and on top of all the reports that have been made to the board of directors and the 53,784 breaches of money laundering legislation at Commonwealth Bank, ASIC, decide, ASIC spends 18 months deciding whether or not they're going to prosecute the directors of Commonwealth Bank, and they turn around after 18 months, they say, we don't have a case to make. What? What do you mean you don't have a case to make? But then it gets worse. Shortly thereafter, Westpac is accused of breaching anti-money laundering legislation 23 million times. And this is a remarkable case, yeah. They had been warned by Austrac repeatedly about low-value transactions that were being sent to the Philippines and Vietnam that were suspected child abuse. So this is pay-per-view, live-streamed sexual assault and torture of infants and children. 23 million breaches, warnings from Austrac going back to 2013. 2019, Austrac launches a case against the directors of Westpac. They've, the directors of Westpac have had 18 months to look at the towering inferno that was Commonwealth Bank's AML breaches. They've done nothing. Nobody's picked up a phone. The CEO, Brian Hartzer, hasn't picked up a phone to the head of compliance and said to him, you know, Commonwealth Bank is this 24-hour-a-day blazing inferno. They're a bank. We're a bank. You know, mutatis, mutandis. I'm just wondering, they've had AML problems. Have we got any AML problems? To which the head of compliance have gone, yeah, we've had AML problems since 2013. Why do you ask? Two dogs. And, and, and AML anti-money laundering, of course. And, uh, and he then says, when he was questioned about it, he said, oh, he'd only become aware of the problem about uh, one or two months previously, and he, he didn't appreciate at the time the severity of the problem. And I listened to that and I thought to myself, what part of the severity of the problem was eluding you, Mr. Hartzer? Was it the two or was it the three in the 23 million breaches? And again, ASIC said, oh, they're going to look into breach of director's duties and they're going to determine whether they can prosecute directors of Westpac. Took them 18 months, turned around, they said, we don't think we've got a case to make. It was just gobsmacking. Then they did it again with the directors of Crown Casino. Once again, Finkelstein inquiry, Bell inquiry. It's huge it's amount worth, of it's worth pointing out here regarding the the Crown Casino. When that happened, it was it was appalling. Um, Josh Frydenberg was the treasurer. I put questions to ASIC, um, and now ASIC tends to at least provide some response. Um, usually, they provide some response. Um, this time, nothing. I said, did Josh Frydenberg ask or otherwise lean on in any way ASIC uh, for it not to press charges? No comment. 
So that was very interesting to me. Um, regarding Brian Hartzor, I just wanted to add there. Do you know where he 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 um, departed Westpac CEO? He was out after after this scandal. Do you know where he ended up? No, Sayers Group. Luke Sayers Sayers Group, <laughs> the PwC CEO for the entire PwC Australia uh, affair. Uh, set up his own company, Sayers Group, a mini PwC. He set it up in 2020, and that's where Brian Hartzer uh, is employed. That's just so, extraordinary. That there is you absolutely go. extraordinary. So they declined, look, again, they declined again to prosecute the directors of Crown Casino. Once again, they said they didn't have a case. Then there was a change of government. Maybe reading the tea leaves and reading the writing on the wall and perhaps realising that this kind of uh, absolute unbridled, slack acidness to enforcing the law wasn't going to stand them well in the future. Along came the Star Casino problem. And all of a sudden, Essex says, yes, they think they've got a case to direct to prosecute the directors of Star Casino. And when people said, well, why, why do you feel you've got a case against Star, but you feel you didn't have a case against Crown? Their answer was, well, Crown came before Star, so Star had notice of these problems at one of their competitors and so they were under a great there's more culpability in the case of star casino because they saw what was happening at crown and and they didn't do anything okay well isn't the same argument true of westpac then westpac and commonwealth bank and the fact of the matter is one of one of the things that asic doesn't do is that they don't take on the top end of town so when they get criticized for not prosecuting enough, they they trot out these figures about all of the hundreds or thousands of people they've prosecuted. I can tell you every single one of them is a one-man operation or a small enterprise. They never take on the big end of town. And the, the power of deterrence doesn't flow from prosecuting small firms and individuals upwards. It only, fl- it, it, it only flows downwards. It, it only flows from prosecuting big entities and very powerful individuals. If you prosecute them, then that deterrent effect flows down to small enterprises. So it's just, it's just busy work and it's just completely pointless. So I think a, um, a, a, another point here, actually just, just one thing briefly regarding that, um, this has been going on for a long time. I'm just looking up here. It was 2007, um, uh, Tony Delucio, who was the ASIC chair at the time, um, I wrote a piece in the Australian newspaper saying exactly that. They're going after the small fry, too scared to take on the big end of town. No, I completely wasn't alone in that. That's pretty much what all the financial press is saying, um, but we're still saying it and still nothing's happening. Um, it's actually gotten worse. And I think that's also worth pointing out. The reason why this 2020 um, journal article is so important because it's so bang on and things are actually worse than they were then. Things are still getting worse. It's just absolutely remarkable. Um, Regarding Austrac, it's one of the only agencies that's actually doing its job in this space. Um, So it was Austrac that um, brought action or highlighted the, the Brian Hartzer issue at Westpac. Um, it's Austrac that's sort of that's on top of on top of these matters. It's the other regulators that are supposed to come in and take action that aren't. Um, now I got a phone call about two years ago, maybe eighteen months ago, from someone, and they were trying to sound me out. They were from a political party. Um, they're in Canberra. Um, they were a bit coy, but they said, "Oh, look, they're looking into it." Um, the feeling is that Austrac is getting too big for its boots. And they're trying to sound me out for information. I didn't give them anything, not that I had much to give and wouldn't have anyway because I didn't even know who I was speaking to. But they were sounding me out and they were, the gist of it was the, the, the powers that be behind the scenes were really unhappy with Austrac um, because Austrac is actually doing its job. So, the, you know, who's running the show in this place? Well, it's the vested interest. 
It's the big banks, um, the big financial institutions in this area that, that are running the show. Why? Well, they're paying paying off the ALP, paying off the Liberal Party, paying off the commercial media and huge amounts of advertising, etc. So that's how things operate. So sadly, anyway, it's just a small anecdote. It's, it's extraordinary. There's this kind of yes minister type of attitude that goes on. We'll establish a regulator so it looks like we're doing something. But if that regulator proves to be proves to be causing inconvenience for our mates in the banking industry, in the insurance industry, if it proves to be um, uh, meddlesome, then we'll take away its funding. We'll uh, hobble it. We'll appoint someone else to run it so that they stop enforcing the law. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want our good mates in the banking industry to be inconvenienced. And this starts to create a pervasive attitude of uh, an ability to evade and and breach the law without there being consequences, and it's 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 what has caused one of the symptoms that we that we see from this malaise, and this comes back to our first podcast, is the behaviour of PwC, is their ability and their willingness and their readiness to breach the law repeatedly to sell Australia's tax secrets to the biggest tax dodgers in the world because their attitude is nothing will happen. And and almost, almost nothing did happen. It was really sheerly, it was really sheer chance that something happened. It was a slow news day. There was a anodyne and, and quite innocuous announcement from the Tax Practitioners Board that this fellow, Peter John Collins, had been struck off the role of tax practitioners because he'd shared some tax secrets, it would have completely passed under the radar. Nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have said a thing. It just happened to be a slow news day. Edmund Tadros and Neil Chenoweth at the Australian Financial Review went, well, let's look into this. And they started pulling on a thread. And next thing, this massive tax fraud that had been going on for years and years and years started to unravel. And one of the things that we found was that the Deputy Commissioner of the the Australian Taxation Office, Jeremy Hershorn, gave testimony to Parliament in which he said, I had three meetings with Luke Sayers. I had three meetings with the man, and in each one of those meetings, I said to him, you need to read the emails which indicate that your staff are sharing tax secrets. And when Luke Sayers, the fellow who created the Sayers Group that Brian Hartzer and Matthias Corman have joined, when Luke Sayers was questioned about it, he did the old... I do not recall shuffle. And that was met with a deep amount of scepticism from the uh, from the Senate inquiry conducting it and bearing in mind in September, I believe it was, there, that the Senate inquiry into consultancies, uh, PwC, they, they came out with an interim report which was um, extremely damning and saying that the cover-up at PwC had been gone going for many years. Um, in, re- in response to that, Luke Sayers, who was PwC Australia CEO from 2012 to 2020, he put out a statement saying, oh, look, I'm only referred to once in there. Everything must be fine, um, to which um, which was ridiculous. And I, I noticed there was a columnist at the time that, that pointed out um, all that did was show, um, point out a, pot- a potential flaw in the, in, the, in the interim report. But they made up for it subsequently, um, having pointed out that um, uh, Mr. Sayers is, is indeed um, very much in the middle of everything there. Um, I think that's a good segue. Um, speaking of... To Matthias Corman. Matthias Corman, indeed. So between... 2013 and 2020, 
Australia's finance minister was Matthias Cormann. Most people will be aware of that. Now, in 2020, um, and, and obviously, and this is also the same period that Australia is, you know, plummeting down the corruption, plummeting further towards corruption than any other nation alongside Hungary. So Matthias Cormann um, in 2020 announces he's going to stand down from government. Then a few months later, which is, takes everyone, well, it takes a lot of people by surprise because you think, well, hang on, you know, he's, he's sort of an up-and-comer in the Liberal Party. Anyway, or an up-and-comer, he's one of the most senior people in the Liberal Party. He's not particularly old. I think he's in his 50s. Um, in October, then Prime Minister Scott Morrison said he would, or the Australian government, would be pushing for Matthias Cormann to become the next boss, Secretary General of the OECD. Now, the OECD being the, uh, the group of nations, the group of 38 wealthy nations. Um, so what the Australian government did, which had drew quite a bit of criticism just in terms of taxpayer spend, et cetera, and whether it was appropriate or not, given this is Matthias Cormann um, applying for the job in a private capacity, even though he's representing Australia, he's not part of the government is they flew Matthias Cormann around for 34 days or 33 days aboard an RAAF-owned jet with an entourage. He had eight, uh, eight and a half full-time employees, so eight, eight employees from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So this is a huge operation. So anyway, he's uh, uh, flying around. Then a couple of months later, it's announced that he's been successful, that he's going to start a, a five in, in March 2021. It's announced that he's going to start uh, a five-year term as the OECD Secretary-General. So what we've established or what's, what's come out since in this uh, Senate inquiry into consultancies, um, after Luke Sayers gave his evidence, the question was, well, hang on, who owns this Sayers group, this, this mini PwC that you set up in 2020 immediately after leaving PwC? And he sort of armed and out a little bit. And they said, oh, it's all right, come back to us in writing. So he did this. Uh, he had 20 uh, partners, what they refer to as partners, you know, fine. It's all on the public, uh, in the public domain. They're also these uh, shareholders or owners of the company that were through a bare trust. So there's no way of the public knowing or being able to know, or even the government being able to know, short of an inquiry asking them who actually owns, who these silent owners are. Uh, and one of the silent owners was Matthias Cormann. So that was, a, that was pretty spectacular, given that under Matthias Cormann, um, the this so-called privatization or the privatization of the public service had exploded. Now we found earlier, uh, sorry, last year now, we found last year uh, the uh, incoming ALP government did a, an audit of all the spend um, on consultants because they'd been raising for a number of years concerns that a lot of the public service was being outsourced at vastly inflated rates. Now, we've discussed that before. And what they found was um, $20.8 billion had been spent in the previous financial year on contractors, uh, and about one-third of the public service had been outsourced. So it's absolutely remarkable. Regarding PwC, uh, a study by the Centre for Public Integrity, which is a group of retired top uh, top Australian judges, so it's absolutely um, uh, top-level outfit, it found that the amount of, over the past decade, the amount of spend, the amount of money, taxpayer money going to the so-called big four consultancies, including PwC, had risen by 400%. Now, even more interesting was they looked at the biggest uh, facet of that spend um, in a certain type of consultancies, the, the biggest bracket, management advisory services, though it was called. Now, the management advisory service spend from the federal government between 2013 and 2020, while Cormann was finance minister, now remembering the finance minister is in charge of the finance department, it's the finance department that signs off on all the spend. So between 2013 and 2020, when Cormann was finance minister, 
federal government payments to PwC Australia for management advisory services exploded by more than 17 times, from 5.8 million to 101.4 million. So there's a huge amount of wealth going from taxpayers to PwC Australia. Who's benefiting? Obviously, PwC Australia. Who's also benefiting perhaps the most of PW Australia is Luke Sayers. He's paid between 2012 and 2020, the same time frame. He's paid $30 million as the PwC Australia CEO. Um, he's getting paid all sorts of bonuses and, and um, extra payments because of the amount of business PwC is getting. It's getting a huge amount of it from the federal government. Um, he leaves, uh, Corman leaves the Australian government and secretly ends up as a secret owner in Sayers' company. And none of this would have come to light were it not for the Senate inquiry and the PwC scandal. So just taking us to the next step, this has come out and it's sort of been buried. I think one of the newspapers, financial newspapers, buried it up the back when this statement came out, even though it was huge. But what's happened is the, um, the Senate inquiry has gone back and said, oh, hang on, um, we need more information, obviously, on this, what's going on. Um, so then the original response says, it said, oh, look, um, uh, Corman was uh, given the equity because he was going to become a partner. Uh, but he didn't. That didn't end up happening. So he rescinded the equity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he's sort of you know, indicating that there's nothing to see here. It was going to happen. It didn't happen. They've asked for more questions, and then Sayers has come forward and said, "Oh, actually, um, yeah, he did do some work for the Sayers Group." So he's admitted that um, not only was Corman a secret equity holder, but that he's actually received remuneration, or he's 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 actually worked for Sayers Group, or he's allegedly worked according to Sayers. Now, a cynic might or um, and a, a casual observer, or not a cynic, anyone might actually look at that and go, well, "Hang on, why? Why would he indicate that he had done no work and now he has?" Well, look, if they were, if the Senate inquiry wants to say, "Well, what remuneration? What's, what are the cash flows here?" I mean, did um, did Matthias Corman receive any money or benefit? Oh, yeah, he did. Okay, well, what did he do for it? Uh, nothing. Well, that's not a good look, is it? So, if he says he's done some work, he's done some work. Look, he may have done some work. Let's see um, what what Sayers has got to say about that. But um, since November, I've been putting questions to Sayers. Um, he's refusing to respond. Sayers Group is refusing to respond. I've put questions to Matthias Corman since November, refusing to respond. Again, in December, refusing to respond. Um, we ran an article in the Klaxon on December 28, laying all this out. It's explosive. It's many thousands of times it's been read all around the world. Um, the A week later, the Fin Review, which which missed this, this story, um, they followed it on the top of huge, big story on the top of page three. So they gave it a full coverage. Um, of, the, of the same story we ran a week earlier. Now, that day or the day before, presumably because they'd also put questions into Corman, we received a response from the OECD saying, hey, look, uh, do you still want a response given it's past your deadline? You know, it was a week ago and it's, and it's the holiday season. I said, yes, um, very much so. We've been looking for responses since November and I've heard nothing back. So there you go. So I think they're hoping it'll go away. Of course, it won't. We'll be sticking to it. So I think that's a pretty pretty remarkable um wrap on what's going on and that's why it's so important looking at um this this journal article into ASIC um laying laying so much of this bare and and bearing in mind the transparency international report that we're plummeting towards or have been plummeting towards corruption and how much how much money has the Sayers group earned from the taxpayer oh now that's a good one so we've got a story coming up in the next couple of days um I did a piece for the Klaxon about six months ago, and it turns out that between 2020 and or in, the, in the two years to mid-2023, so we're looking mid-21 to mid-23, um, the federal government had given Sayers Group 17 contracts worth $6.2 million. So that's straight to Luke Sayers' private company. And actually, it's also Corman's private company because he secretly is an owner of it. Um, now, another thing which reminds me, it's worth pointing out that um, 
In the second response, the question was, well, hang on, when did uh, Matthias Cormann get this equity in this company? And Sayers said December 2020. So that's uh, the month after Cormann has left the Australian government. And while um, days after he returns from his uh, jet setting aboard the RAAF aircraft, while they're waiting on the, well, while the, while the, the process continues for the, for the top job at the OECD. Uh, so what we've I've just don't crunched the numbers in any event, and we've seen last year the big fallout of PricewaterhouseCoopers and um, government saying we need to re- rein in on contractors, etc. Now Sayers Group is actually run by the guy that was in charge of PwC for all of this scandal. Um, Sayers Group received another one point six million dollar contract, and they've put that up just before Christmas. Um, so um, adding all the numbers up. Sayers Group has been given $10.8 million since Sayers set it up in 2020, just in federal government contracts. So despite the repeated scandals involving PwC when he was the CEO, despite the allegations made by the Deputy Commissioner of the Australian Taxation Office that he warned Mr Sayers three times, named in a Senate report, despite the fact that uh, the Australian government has said they're going to clamp down on uh, giving, dishing out contracts to consultants, despite the fact that Mr Sayers' group uh, is really in a a position where uh, they should be treated with the greatest circumspection. The finance department is still dishing out million-dollar contracts to them as, as recently as Christmas of last year. Unbelievable. So about, what, two, three weeks ago? Yeah. Um, so there you go. That's um, that's that's the state of play as we see it, or as it is. So, um, and you think I'd that like probably, to, yep. I'd, I'd like to leave if, if we were sort of moving towards wrapping up. I'd like to leave uh, leave you with a couple of thoughts. There's this um, concept. There's this term called crony capitalism, and it's something that I've that I think I understand fairly well because I. Uh, my PhD was on the collapse of the Indonesian banking industry and Indonesia under President Suharto was the most glaring example of a crony capitalist state. What crony capitalism means is uh, you you, uh, dish out significant economic benefits to people who are cronies of people in government. And And in light of that concept and in light of what you've said today about our decline on the transparency index. My fear is that Australian democracy is being undermined and Australians, Australia's rule of law is being damaged, not by mask mandates, but by a slide into crony capitalism, a slide that is being facilitated by a securities regulator run by a man who was the general counsel for Deutsche Bank, the most one of the most fined and penalised recidivist law-breaking banks in the world, uh, a man who... Uh, openly advocated for a light touch to regulation, a man who, since he has taken over at ASIC, uh, has we've we've seen has uh, presided over a very sh- sharp and very steep decline in the number of prosecutions that ASIC undertakes. In fact, the Bragg inquiry released figures that demonstrate that ASIC is now uh, prosecuting fewer cases than the Great Barrier Reef Marine Authority, and. Wow. I come back to the article that uh, where where this today's podcast began, and I, I want to I want to quote something else from the article. In a and 
and this is from page 1,431 of the article. This is the article by uh, Georgeson in the UNSW Law Journal. And he says, in a follow-up, off the record interview, one of the most senior investigators spoke of how ASIC investigators discovered that one of Australia's largest banks had, and I quote, stolen or misappropriated billions of dollars from term deposit accounts, close quotes. When it was brought to the attention of ASIC's highest ranking officials, the corporate watchdog declined to prosecute even after receiving affirmative written legal advice from two separate King's councils. As the interviewee put it, we were never going to lose. Similarly, another former investigator spoke of providing a detailed tip-off to ASIC on a $35 million investment fraud case, disclosing all relevant details of offences, including transactions, accounts, and emails. And he quotes, I basically wrapped this up, gave it to them, and all they had to do was just issue some Section 19 notices call these people in and get them to produce documents and financial statements, and they'd have had a prosecution. ASIC failed to act. I'll say again, the, the dangers that are facing Australia is not a mask mandate. The dangers that are facing Australia is that the most important regulator in our financial industry, the most important regulator in our economy, is not asleep at the wheel. They are purposefully, they have purposefully gone AWOL. And... Uh, there's been a slight improvement in the way things are being conducted in Canberra since the Albanese government took over, but it's, it's really marginal. There is an enormous amount of improvement that is, that is still warranted. And I hope that, you know, I, I see that there are reports that the current government is uh, looking shaky in terms of whether it will be re-elected, and I hope that they will come to their senses and realise that as Australians face a cost of living crisis and they refuse to take steps against uh, our banking oligopoly or our supermarket duopoly or our airline duopoly or our mobile phone duopoly, Rep I hope that they will realise... superannuation funds. Our banks don't vote. Our supermarkets don't vote. Our telcos don't vote. Our they airlines do, however, don't they vote. They do, however, pay off the, the political parties. Absolutely. But who votes? We the people. And uh, if... If the information that you've received in this podcast stirs you, I encourage you, send an email to your MP, send an email to the Treasurer, send an email to the Deputy Treasurer, send an email to the Prime Minister to say, this is not good enough. We don't want to see a continuation of the crony capitalism that we saw under the last regime. Pull your thumb out, start doing something. I, I agree entirely. And, uh, and and it's not as if, um, you know, all is not lost. This is not a pessimistic cause. Um the only, the only way to change this is, is public awareness. So if you know anyone who might be interested in this podcast, please point them to it. Um, um, share the word. Um, head to the Klaxon, K-L-A-X-O-N.com.au. Um, you'll find a wealth of these stories. Um, share widely. If you can, um, click subscribe or, or make a one-off donation to help, help us pay the bills. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, Anthony. And once again, to the people who've tuned in, tremendous, tremendous gratitude for your time. Thank you so much.